We are continuing the sermon series through the book of the Acts of the Apostles or the Acts of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Apostles. We are now in chapter 7. I invite you to open your Bible or the Pew Bible to page 914 for the reading of Scripture which begins at chapter 7, verse 1 and continues into chapter 8. I think this is the, the lengthiest passage of Scripture that I have ever read publicly for a sermon text in the 37 years of my ministry. So I do want to encourage you, even if it is not your habit, to open the Bible and to read along with me. I just think that it will help you stay with the passage. But it is one coherent whole, and it is necessary to read it in its entirety. In fact, as we begin at 7-1, we're really kind of jumping right into the passage. The lead-up to this, and again, you've seen my little Vimeo uh, messages to you. It's important to stay up with this sermon series through Acts. It's a historical narrative. It's moving. It's flowing. And last Sunday, Pastor Jonathan preached from uh, chapter 6, in which we meet uh, Stephen, one of the uh, early believers who was set apart, perhaps one of the first deacons, and uh, also a great witness bearer for Christ. And he was accosted, arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin for examination, interrogation. And that's where we are as we begin chapter 7, verse 1. Let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Our Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth. And now grant unto us the Holy Spirit to open our minds spiritually and our hearts that we might receive your word for what it is, the very word of God, that we might be further transformed into the likeness of your Son, to the glory of your name. Amen. Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. This is the word of God. It is written. The high priest said to Stephen, Are these things so? Meaning the charges which were being laid against Stephen, that he was speaking against the law of Moses and speaking against the temple. And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob 
and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dwelt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed... Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me? As you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, God, sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. 
He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your God, Rephan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it with in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers did not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, 
he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever, and to him be all praise, honor, and glory. Amen. According to a recent report, 13 Christians worldwide are killed every day. That comes to about 4,750 per year. That is a conservative estimate. Another source estimates the number to be closer to 10,000 deaths per year. Every day, 12 Christians are unjustly arrested or imprisoned, and another five are abducted. 340 million Christians today live in nations around the globe in which they suffer severe persecution. That comes to about one out of eight Christians worldwide. Not necessarily persecution unto death, but severe oppression and persecution. So if you translate those numbers and say that we average about 200 here in Covenant, one out of eight would mean 25. Now, if 25 of us were suffering severe persecution, that number would not be a statistic, would it? It would be personal. The reality of persecution today has a connection to this passage from Acts 7 because this passage shows us when and where and how the violent persecution began. Stephen, who is described in Acts 6 as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, a man full of grace and power, was the first martyr for Jesus Christ. The word martyr comes from the Greek New Testament word martis, which means simply witness. When Jesus said to his apostles, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria. That word witnesses is the Greek New Testament word martures. In the Greek, it does not necessarily denote a witness given by death, but in the English language, it, is, it has come into the English language such that most often and commonly it refers to a believer who dies under persecution because of, as a direct result of, his or her faith. And it all started right here as recorded in Acts 7 outside Jerusalem with the mob execution of Stephen. Now, this is a long passage. It marks a pivotal transition point in the historical narrative of the book of Acts and a transitional pivot point in the history of the early church. And I want you to get this. Now, we're going to have to go to class for a little while this morning, but hang in here with me. Hang in. 
I want to give you four handles, so to speak, four main points by which we can get the really big picture of this passage. And it's important for us to do so in order for us to understand the flow of the book of Acts, more importantly, the history of the church, and more importantly, perhaps, where we are today in the history of the church. All right? So here we go. We need to understand the significance of Stephen's martyrdom at this point. First of all, big idea number one, handle number one, the unlawful mob execution of Stephen by the Jewish council, the high court, the Sanhedrin, shows us a new level of hostility. Now listen carefully to this. A new level of hostility by the first century Jewish establishment leadership against the Jewish believers in Jesus. Remember, I've made this point repeatedly. The apostles and the other believers in Jesus, first of all, in Jerusalem, all were Jews who considered themselves to be faithful Jews. They had no notion, they had no concept, they had no intention of starting a new religion which would become known as Christianity. They were simply Jews who believed that Jesus of Nazareth, a Jew who had been crucified and raised from the dead and had ascended into heaven, was the promised Messiah of Israel. But that message was a threat to the authority and the power of the first century Jewish establishment leadership. And the very idea of a Messiah crucified by the Romans was a disgustingly blasphemous, scandalous notion among the Jewish establishment. And so the, the apostles and the other believers at first were regarded as a troublemaking movement of Jewish heretics which needed to be silenced, canceled. And so up to this point, as we have read, the Jewish authorities had arrested the apostles, harassed them, arrested them, detained them, beaten them, warned them not to preach in Jesus' name or to perform miracles in his name. But now... But now, with the martyrdom of Stephen, we get to a new level of hostility. And therefore, big idea number two, another handle, hold on to. We get to a more distinct, a, a, a division, a rupture, if you will, between the official Jewish establishment, official Judaism, centered in Jerusalem and in the temple, and the Jewish believers in Jesus. There's a, with the martyrdom of Stephen, the rupture really begins to take place. As Luke tells us in 8.1, with the stoning of Stephen, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And that means, you see, 
that these Jewish believers in Jesus were no longer welcome in the temple. They were being identified and cast out from the temple. They were being excommunicated from Jewish society because they were a threat and a blasphemous offense to everything that first century Judaism held dear. They were therefore really no longer regarded as Jews. Now, as an aside, I hope that you have been hearing me over the past weeks as I have been very intentionally, very deliberately repeating the phrase first century Jewish leadership, first century Jewish establishment. It's simply a matter of historical fact that the first persecution of believers in Jesus, Jewish believers in Jesus, came from the Jewish establishment leadership of the first century. That in no way whatsoever is a slur against Jews of today. That in no way is a slur in any way against Jews of today. It, it is no basis whatsoever for any kind of anti-Jewish attitude or behavior today. But it does explain and clarify much of what you read in the New Testament about the opposition and the persecution of Christians in the middle decades of the first century, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s. In Paul's letters, for example, and other letters of the New Testament, you see there are very various and, and many and various references to the opposition and the persecution which Christians faced from first century Jews. It carries all the way through the New Testament. You can see it even in the book of the Revelation. And you understand that Roman persecution, we most often think about Christians being persecuted under the Roman Empire, but Roman persecution didn't begin in earnest until the sort of early mid-60s under Emperor Nero. Most of the persecution and opposition you read about in the New Testament has to do with the persecution coming from establishment Judaism in the first century. So at, at this point, with Stephen's martyrdom, now, come on, here we go, here we go, here we go. With Stephen's martyrdom, we really begin to see the dividing line, the rupture between Old Covenant Israel centered upon the temple and the sacrificial system instituted under Moses and New Covenant Israel, the church of Jesus Christ. In its, in its earliest, we might say, embryonic stages. And that's who we are. That's who we are. The church of Jesus Christ is the New Covenant Israel. You hear Pastor Jonathan and I use this kind of language a lot. And what I'm trying to do here is show you historically how, it, how we see it developing right here in Acts, right before our very eyes. The church of Jesus Christ is the new covenant Israel. It is centered upon Jesus Christ as our true prophet, high priest, and eternal king. Jesus Christ is our sacrificial Passover lamb. Jesus Christ 
is the fulfillment of God's law for our righteousness. Jesus' blood shed on the cross is the blood of the new covenant which atones for our sins. Jesus Christ is the true temple of God, the dwelling place of God with us in His incarnation, and therefore His church, His body today, His worldwide church is the spiritual temple of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, New Covenant Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, is not identified with one geographical location, nor with one ethnic identity. No, the New Covenant Israel, The church of Jesus Christ is worldwide. It is comprised of people, believers of all nations, of every tribe and tongue, including people of Jewish ethnicity who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. That's who we are. That's who you are if indeed you are in Christ through faith. You are a member and a citizen of God's holy nation. New Covenant Israel. The church of Jesus Christ. That's your primary identity. So, here in Acts 7, we've come to that point in the narrative at which we can clearly see from here forward, there's going to be a rupture between Old Covenant Israel and New Covenant Israel. And that division runs all the way through the rest of the New Testament. Having this lens to look through will actually, it'll open up windows of insight. Just go read. Go read the letter to the Philippians and Ephesians and First and Second Peter. It'll open up all kind of windows of insight. And then you see what happened was Old Covenant Israel, centered on the temple and the sacrificial system, Old Covenant Israel came to its ultimate and tragic end. Just as Jesus prophesied under the judgment of God in the year 70 A.D. when the Romans overran Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. That was the end of the Old Covenant uh, Israelite religion. Now, big idea number three. The result of this great persecution, the result of this great persecution of New Covenant Israel, Jesus' church, beginning with the stoning of Stephen, the result was that the church, quote, was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Does that sound familiar? You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria. Well, when Jesus told them that, he didn't tell them exactly how that would take place. But it did take place. Their witness, the Christians' witness, throughout all Judea and Samaria, took place as a result of the great persecution, which began with the stoning of Stephen. So from this point forward in the narrative of Acts, we're going to see how the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is when the great missionary movement began 
as a result of persecution. As a result of persecution. Now that raises the question, well, who was in control of these events then? The stoning of Stephen and the great persecution which followed. The only real answer to that question is the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, whom Stephen saw and to whom Stephen called out as he was dying. Now, this does not mean that Jesus caused the Jewish leaders to stone Stephen. Just as God the Father did not cause them to crucify Jesus. No, wicked men do wicked things by their own wicked choices according to their own wicked nature. To the degree that God permits for His purposes. God is not the author of evil. But God the Father, through His Son, Jesus Christ, rules over wicked men and rules through the wicked things that wicked men do by their wicked choices according to their wicked nature. He rules and overrules. And the stoning of Stephen, therefore, was not an obstacle to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the contrary, it was a catalyst for the spread of the gospel. Now get that. The stoning of Stephen was not an obstacle to the spread of the gospel. It was a catalyst for the spread of the gospel. And that has often been the case concerning persecution of Christians throughout the world, throughout world history and in our own day. The church, Tertullian, the church father, Tertullian, late second, early third century, said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And even if persecution does not always immediately result in the numerical growth of the church, it can serve to purify, prune the dead wood, sift out the chaff, and strengthen the church for a more faithful and effective witness. So, you know, maybe rather than wringing our hands in anxious fear about how bad things are getting in America... We ought to be asking ourselves how the Lord Jesus Christ is calling us and moving us to get out of our comfort zones and live as his witnesses in this strange new world of American anti-Christian secularism in the 21st century. He's behind it all. He's ruling over it all. He's working his purposes out. He's calling us to be his witnesses now, as well as to continue our support and participate in Christ's ongoing global mission in nations around the world. Everything we see going on, we worry about, it's no obstacle to God. It's the instrument in God's hand. If we'll only remember who's in charge, who is the sovereign ruler. So in other words, we ought to look at the cultural and moral challenges we face 
as the Lord's way of calling and moving us, so to speak, into new territories as his witnesses. It has to do with the way we live faithfully within our families, in our marriages, the way we educate our children, the way we're faithful in the life of this congregation, and the way in which we participate in the gospel mission beyond these walls, in our community, and around the world. Get on board. God is moving and acting just as he was in the first century. Big idea number four. Here's the big handle number four. Did you notice that in this chapter we meet a young man named Saul? Now, if we were watching this narrative on a movie, you would know. You would know this. When the camera shifts and focuses on this proud, austere, scowling young man, sternly nodding his approval as Stephen dies, you would know that that guy was going to be an important person moving forward. And he might not be good. This is our introduction to Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus was a significant city in the region of Cilicia, the southeastern region of modern-day Turkey near the Mediterranean coast. It was, it was also a leading intellectual center of the ancient world, a university town. The young man Saul had been born there, and as a bright and promising student, at some point he had come to Jerusalem to study with the esteemed Rabbi Gamaliel a member of the Sanhedrin. Young Saul aspired to be the best of the best of the best of the experts in the law of Moses. He aspired to be the best and the brightest which Judaism could produce. In Jerusalem, Saul had associated with the synagogue of those very strict Jews from Cilicia, his, his home region. It was mentioned in Acts chapter 6. He was among those who rose up and disputed with Stephen, but as Luke tells us, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Not even the most intellectually bright, highly educated, philosophically sophisticated soul could withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. And you can bet that that did not sit well with Saul. It is no wonder, as Luke tells us in 8.1, that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. That's the beginning of his story. So we got four big ideas, four big handlebars to hold on to, to get the big grip on this passage. Number one, Harassment by establishment Judaism increases into violent persecution of Jesus' followers. Violent persecution makes the rupture between Old Covenant Israel and New Covenant Israel clear and distinct. Violent persecution scatters the church and spreads the gospel into Judea and Samaria. And we are introduced to Saul of Tarsus, who approved of Stephen's execution. Okay, now let's go back 
and hit some highlights of Stephen's speech. We're just going to skim the surface. It's the longest speech in Acts. And as we, you could tell, it's basically a survey of Old Testament history from Abraham to David and Solomon with a reference to the Babylonian exile. And, and Stephen gives this speech as his defense in response to those false charges that, that he had been speaking against the temple and the law of Moses. So Stephen offers his defense by way of this Old Testament, if you will, historical survey. But now I want to give you the big idea summary of Stephen's long speech. What was this about? Well, the whole history of Old Covenant Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, the whole history of Old Covenant Israel, beginning with Abraham, from whom the nation of Israel was descended, to Moses, through whom God gave the law, to David and his son Solomon, under whom the temple was built. The history of Old Covenant Israel points to, leads up to, and is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ of Israel, crucified, risen, and reigning at the right hand of God. Never forget, this is the way to read the Old Testament. Ultimately, it's all about Jesus It points to Him, it leads up to Him, it finds its fulfillment in Him. That's the reason that I have entitled this semester's men's Bible study, Jesus in Genesis. Never forget that Jesus said to the Jewish leaders who opposed Him, you search the Scriptures, of what we would call the Old Testament, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Scriptures of the Old Testament, that bear witness about me. John 5, 39. And then remember, after his resurrection, as Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus with those two people who didn't recognize him at first, Luke tells us that, beginning with Moses, that means the five books of Moses, and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the Old Testament, the things concerning himself. This is the big idea of Stephen's Old Testament historical survey. God called Abram when he was an idolater in the foreign regions of Mesopotamia. God's covenant with Abraham was for the sake of blessing all the nations of the earth through his descendant, Jesus. The story of Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, who was betrayed by his own brothers. Ding, ding, ding nevertheless became a savior of the ancient Israelites during the time of famine. That's a foreshadowing of Jesus himself. The sacrificial system instituted by God through Moses after the Exodus illustrated the need for atonement, forgiveness through the shedding of blood. But the blood of bulls and sheep cannot atone for human sin. These sacrifices of the old covenant merely pointed to the need for the perfect sacrifice of the perfect man who could bear the sins of his people for their salvation. And the temple built by Solomon, the son of David, as glorious as it was, could not contain the infinite and eternal God who created the heavens and the earth. It was only a temporary structure, as glorious as it was, to show that, to show old covenant Israel that a day was coming when God himself would dwell with them and they with him 
through His own presence, with them, through His Son. But Israel repeatedly killed the prophets who called them to repentance and faith. And now this stiff-necked generation, uncircumcised in heart and ears, meaning that not really living as true Jews, they were resistant to the Holy Spirit and they had murdered the righteous one, Jesus Christ, who himself was the fulfillment of the law and the true temple, the true presence of God with them. Stephen's indictment was too much to tolerate. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. But note this. Before he died, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now think about it. It was a horrible, horrible incident. The, the stoning of Stephen. If you, if you had, had been there, it would have been sickening to watch. Horrible. But Stephen saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. As his advocate. As the one who would welcome him into the glory of everlasting life. And so Stephen, the first martyr, bore witness even as he died, echoing Jesus' words as he had died on the cross. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Which is what Jesus said to the Father as he was dying on the cross. And Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Which echoes Jesus' words, Father, forgive them. So they know not what they do. Well, We'll pick up here next week. We've got some more to cover. But for now, just think about this. And take it to heart. Knowing that Jesus Christ is our Savior and our Advocate in heaven. Knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord over all that happens on earth. And believing that, that should give us all the courage we need to live and to die as his witnesses. Brothers and sisters, be cheerful, not fearful. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We will share his glory, provided we share in his suffering. To God be the glory. Amen. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word, which strengthens us, convicts, and more deeply converts us. We pray that your Holy Spirit will accomplish this good in our hearts. We might live more fully and faithfully for your glory. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith.
responsibly from the Heidelberg Catechism number one. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Is that I belong, body and soul, and life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. At the cost of his own precious blood, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the dominion of the devil. He also watches over me so well that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together to fit his purpose for my salvation. Therefore, because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly ready and willing from now on to live for him. Amen.